Steve here. Before we get to this week's edition of the AC Podcast, listen up. Are you a young Christian professional or student between the ages of 19 and 30? If so, you need to check out our Leadership Summit weekend coming to Ontario for the first time between May 5th and 7th. The Leadership Summit is an opportunity for you to connect with other aspiring Christian leaders and be equipped in the outdoor beauty of Muskoka at Camp Mediba, about two and a half hours drive away from Toronto. Your hosts and my dear colleagues, Wes Huff, our Central Canada Director, and Troy Lydiot, our Creative Director, have prepared an amazing weekend of growth. You'll be hearing from speakers like biophysicist Kirk Durston and educator Alicia Galati, political theorist Logan Gates, and evangelist Jill Royas to learn more about what it looks like to be a Christian leader in the wider culture. You have to apply to join us that weekend, though, and the application deadline is May 1st. But you know what? Don't wait until then. The remaining spots are going real fast, so don't delay. Go to apoliticscanada.com forward slash, now listen carefully here, leadership-summit-on, O-N for Ontario. Again, go to apoliticscanada.com forward slash leadership-summit-on to learn more about the event and apply. Hope to see you there. Now, with that said, let me get out of the way so we can get to this week's edition of the AC Podcast. Here is myself. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of the AC Podcast. This is Steve, your host for this week. I'm here with Andy Steiger, the head honcho, and Wesley Huff, the director of Central Canada, uh, as if he needed another reminder that he's at the center of the universe. Welcome here, gentlemen. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. I have a head, but it's not a honcho, so we'll... uh... (laughs) <laughs> i don't even know what to think of that yeah <laughs> yeah um i am hosting today because troy is away in california sunny california hey we miss you troy i hope you're having fun there uh we're just gonna jump right into things we have a really kind of a juicy topic for you this weekend next week it's gonna be a two-parter and we're gonna talk about sin Now, this is one of those words that, you know, has been used many, many times over. Uh, It comes with all kinds of cultural baggage. And what I found is that words that have been used a lot like that, that comes with cultural baggage, people are somewhat hazy about what it actually means. It's interesting you should say that, Steve, because the, the baggage around sin is there's so much baggage that I often don't even use the word sin. When I'm talking to Christian or non-Christian audience I'll often use the word evil because it tends to resonate more uh, with people and sidestep some of that baggage. But one thing that I think is going to be important for us to get into uh, on this topic, and one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about it, is that there's not just cultural baggage, there's Christian baggage around the topic of sin that we need to deal with. And I, and I find this interesting that a lot of people don't fully uh, understand this idea of sin. And, and I would be one of those. And I, I would say I'm still in a journey uh, of trying to understand sin more deeply. Uh, and maybe that might sound uh, surprising to hear that, but I think sin's a complicated theology. There's many layers to the concept of sin and, and various mysteries to it as well that we'll get into. So I'm looking forward to unpacking this topic and getting deeper into it. Well, and I think the conversation is so wrapped up in Christianese and theological language that I remember reading, this was a few years ago now, but when Martin Luther was translating the Bible into German, 
he talked about the the complexity of translation and how hard it is to render something that's clear in a language that it wasn't originally written in. And I remember thinking about that and thinking, what are those words that are in the English Bible that clearly have a clear communication in Hebrew and Greek? And even just thinking, you know, if I were to walk up to someone and ask them, what does justification mean? They could very well say, well, you know, you need to put out an argument for something you've done wrong, right? You need to put out a justification. Um, Well, that's not what the Bible means when it uses the word justification. So I think that there's merit to understanding some of the classical Christian words and maybe not shying away from them. But at the same time, when we're talking with people, we want to make sure that they understand what we're saying and aren't hearing something that we're not communicating with them. Just for to provide some clarity to what uh, Wes is saying here is the Bible uses various words, both in the Greek and Hebrew that get translated as sin. And so there's a, there's a depth there that needs to be unpacked and, and thought about with what's, what's the Bible getting at when we talk about this. And, and I'm glad you brought up the imagery of layers, Andy, because that's precisely the issue here. Cause often when we think of sin, right, we think of a list of do's and don'ts and we most often think in like legal terms, right? In fact, in Korean mm. law, um, they use the same word uh, that is used for sin in the Bible. Uh, they use that in the court of law to talk about uh, various crimes. Or, in fact, they talk about when they talk about, say, the quality of a crime, the heinousness of a crime. They'll use that word. And so we we often think of it in terms of you know crimes or do, breaking some kind of a legal code, and that's not wrong. But like you said, there's more layers that we need to keep digging into. And I I certainly, my understanding of sin has kind of expanded over the years. You know, with regards to that idea of expanding over the years, that, that would be my uh, journey as well, Steve. And, and I'd actually say that where a lot of my journey started when I was pastoring, uh, early on pastoring, we would do these different kids camps. And it's funny how kids ministry sometimes can make you think more deeply about theology as you're trying to explain it, you know, simply to a child. And, and at this one kid, kids camp, and I'm not, and I'm not, uh, you know, speaking rudely to, about this church or, or the kids ministry, you know, as they were trying to under, you know, trying to unpack the idea of sin to children, but their, their definition was, uh, anything you say or do that displeases God. And I remember it really arrested my attention and got me thinking, I'm like, is, is that, is that a good definition of sin? Like, is does that actually encompass the complexity of of what sin is and, and do it justice? And and so I'm I'm looking forward to this topic because I, I think that Christians really need to think more deeply about what we mean by it because I think sometimes we have a very narrow view that can lead you astray. So let's jump right into it. Then um, we just brought up one layer of it, which is doing. Um, right, so doing wrong things, so to speak, breaking some kind of a code of ethics, um, or doing something that displeases God. If I were to give a short answer to what you were asking earlier, like does this encapsulate what sin is? I, I would say no. It's not wrong, but I think it's a very thin layer of it. So, um, what would be your critique of it 
Wes and Andy about, you know, that definition of sin as doing anything that displeases God? Well, I think it's no less than that, but I think it's much more than that. Hmm. Because I, I think there are things that displease God that aren't sinful necessarily, but could be foolish. That we could be leading ourselves astray or doing things that could lead to sinful behavior, but are not sin and of themselves. And so you, you might be, uh, you might be maybe selling sin short with that kind of definition mm-hmm. because it doesn't encapsulate everything that's there. Now, when you talk about sin, right, if you've gone to Bible school for any length of time, where you start with is, well, what does that word mean, right? And you'll often bring up the idea of missing the mark. And that's what sin is, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in Hebrew and in Greek. The idea is of an archer uh, missing the target. So the idea is... Um, you, you know, there, there is a certain design that God has for you about what life should look like as part of our design, but we miss the mark. So there's a whole lot that needs to be unpacked there. Can I expand that? Because I think that that's true. And I think that that's kind of become a cliche term, but I think we often don't realize where that's coming from. So without getting too nerdy, there are about five words that we translate as sin. Uh, there are, I think three in the Hebrew and two in the Greek. Um, but the main one in Hebrew is the Hebrew word chata, uh, which is fun to say, which does mean fail or miss. And the reason I think it's drawn upon this and you hear that term that, uh, sin means to, to miss is because we actually see an example when describing the Israelite tribe of Benjamin in Judges chapter 20, where it says that among all the people that were, uh, left that there were 700 people, men, chosen to be in the army and that they all were left-handed. And it says that they did not miss when they slung stones. And that word that we translate as miss is actually that word chata, which is sin. And there's another place, Proverbs 19.2, that says that those who desire without knowledge are good and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. And once again, that word misses is chata. So I think maybe what, when you say go to Bible college, as you were saying, Steve, they're drawing from is this idea that sin is a failure to hit a target or to fulfill or make a goal. And that that implies that there's a standard that we're, we're not attaining, that we're not living up to. Now, this is a, a good idea and analogy then for us to think about, because I, I find that this is where uh, a lot of... Christians and non-Christians miss the mark, pun intended. So imagine, right, we've got the target, right? And you're pulling back the arrow, you're shooting the arrow. And so the a, a, an important question to be asking when we're thinking about sin is, what's the target? Now, for a lot of people, a very simplified view, going back to that, you know, kind of a kid definition that we were talking about, well, missing the target is to upset God. It's to not follow one of God's rules. And what can happen is you can begin to develop this theology of of a God of rules and that God's got all these rules and God wants you to follow these rules and God's going to be unhappy unless you follow these rules. And, And oddly enough or interestingly enough, ironically enough, you miss the target. You 
you miss the idea of, in fact, what God is after and what the target is and the the message of the Bible. So we got to get clear, guys, what, what actually is the target? What are we missing? Just to add one more <laughs> layer to that, um, when we talk about it in those terms, like doing something that displeases God, I think we can also get into our minds the, this idea that these rules are just completely arbitrary. That it's just mm-hmm. what yeah. at God's whim, and and so then what tends to happen then is you start to view God as this kind of dictator, this tyrant that has all these rules over your life, right? And so then the question you, we have to come back to is why these rules? Where do these rules come from, right? And so that then connects with what you're asking, Andy, is well, what is the design? What is the purpose of all of this? Now, this is something that Jesus talks a lot about. That I and you see this actually from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, that God is after your flourishing. God's desire is for your good. God wants you to be blessed. Now, I think that in some regards we have a hard time with that because especially in certain evangelical circles, we are so uh concerned about falling into a health and wealth gospel that we forget that God actually does want you to be blessed. You know, God actually does want you to be flourished. Now the question of course is going to be, well, what does it look like to be blessed? What does it look like to be, to flourish? But I I find this interesting in, you know, Jesus's sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five to seven where a lot of people refer to this as the Beatitudes. And there's many people that, and I've talked about this before, but they kind of fall into this line that, oh, you know, Jesus' sermon is about attitudes you should be or have sort of thing. But actually what the the Greek is, it, you, Beatitudes come, is coming from the Latin. The Greek is blessing. It's talking about this is going to lead to your flourishing. This, Jesus is talking about what's going to lead to the good life. And I think that's a way of speaking that throws a lot of Christians off guard. They're not they're not used to that way of thinking more positively. Well, and even on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is bringing a lot of the ideas back to the law. Like, I don't think Jesus is introducing anything new there. No. I think he's actually going right back to the intention of the law. So when he says something like, well, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but anyone who holds anger in his heart has committed murder already. I don't think that's something new. I think what he's correcting the false views that are added by the traditions of the Jewish leaders, and he's bringing it back to the intention. And so related to what you were talking about, Steve, in terms of missing the mark, I think you can go right back to the very first page of the Bible and the idea of being created in the image of God. And in in a very concrete way, although I don't think this encapsulates everything, Part of what the law of God is, and especially I would say the Ten Commandments, is the idea that you are created in God's image. God is not, let's say, a murderer. Therefore, don't commit murder. Like live up to that image that you bear. You know, God is not a liar. You're created in his image. Don't lie. God is not an adulterer. You're created in his image. So so don't lie. You know, you know why adultery is a sin, right, guys? I, I I feel a dad I, joke. I'm afraid here. to ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, adultery is a sin because you can't have your uh, Kate and Edith too, and so um, 
going back to uh, the something a little bit more serious, you know, sin in one specific way is the failure to recognize the sacredness of yourself and others as image bearers of God. Not that you are divine in a sort of new agey way, but that we bear that image of God. And this is what we see in the Ten Commandments because of the brokenness going against God's law has created. We see God's commandments split between failing to love God and failing to love people, right? That's the first five, failing to love God. And the other five of the Ten Commandments is failing to love people. And I think this is related. Uh, you know, when Joseph refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife in Genesis 37, he says, how could I sin against God? Well, that's not actually a sin against, I mean, in the if we want to think about it like naturalistically, that would be a sin against Potiphar. That would be a sin against himself. That'd be a sin against Potiphar's wife. But he expresses it very concretely, right? Uh, David too, Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned when talking about sleeping with um, uh, uh, Bathsheba. Bathsheba, Bathsheba, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so it's, it's clear, this is why God's justice and God's love and God's law are so intricately connected in the Bible. It's not that God is, like you were talking about before, Steve, some sort of cosmic killjoy. It's because yeah. of the failure to recognize others' image bearers of God and causing that rift in your relationship with others and your relationship with God, right? Loving God and loving people. And let me bring your point, uh, Wes, with your point, Andy. I think these to connect really well um, because earlier I mentioned, you know, yeah, God can come as a killjoy or a tyrant. You know, where do these rules come from? Um and then we talked about these rules. It, what is this rule for? Now, one thing that I had in my mind, I read this book last year called God and Moral Obligations by C. Stephen Evans, this philosopher guy. Really heavy text. I don't recommend that you read it unless you have insomnia, uh, but mm -hmm. really helpful towards the end. He raises Hopefully the Hopefully that author's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I wish there was a more readable version of that. But nonetheless, really helpful book because um, he brings this into focus. You know, what is the role of obligations? What is the role of duties and rules and those kinds of things? Now, this is where it gets all, all of this gets put back together. So Jesus said in Mark 12, you know, what, what is the greatest commandment? So in other words, what is the meaning of life? Love God, love people. Right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and why why should we do that? Well, because, like you said, Wes, God created us in His image, um, so that we could have this actually loving relationship with God and with other people. Right, so this becomes possible. So, in in some ways, when God created us in His image, His desire and His goal or des design is that we live like Him. Why? Because mm. we're made in his image, right? And what is so when we don't live up to that, then it's not just sin against, you know, if I steal from you, Wes, it's not just sin against you. It's mm -hmm. sin against God as well, because I'm going against his intent. But here's something really interesting, bringing this back to the whole rules thing. What is the purpose of these rules? Let's say thou shalt not murder. You mentioned, well, because God, that, that's, that goes contrary to God's nature. That's true, and I would just add to the mix that in following these rules, we become, in a sense, more like God. It shapes us and transforms us, and I think that's one thing that rules 
and obligations do. And parents know this all too well, right? We set rules, for example, you know, my kids, nine and seven, they love sweet things, right? But of course, we can't give them too much of that because for one, it's going to drive me and my wife nuts because they've got way too much energy, but it's also not good for their health. And the reason we limit that is for their protection, but also so that they actually learn to control themselves. So my ultimate desire is that they come to a place where they don't live by these rules, but they understand the purpose of these rules and they they live by that themselves. So in this book that I mentioned earlier, um, uh, Evans says that, uh, you know, basically the saints don't need rules, right? Because the rules have so transformed these saints that they don't need these rules anymore. So in a sense, the goal of these rules is for them to be obsolete because we live well, by the spirit of it. I, I would go further than that, Steve. Because uh, I would say that any parent's rules is not because the parent loves their rules, but because the parent loves their child. Right. Yeah. The The parent's desire is for the good of the child. So the, the rules become obsolete in the sense that your desire is for their flourishing. And so if you understand that, hey, if I don't, commit adultery, that's going to lead to my good. Mm -hmm. God wants me to experience a blessed life. So don't murder. Don't lie. Again, not because am I trying, not because God's got these rules and I got to follow these rules because I want to make God happy. No, it's because God actually loves you. And because he loves you, he wants you to experience flourishing. He wants you to experience, you know, life in its fullest, in the same way that a good parent loves a child and wants them to experience the fullness of life. And I think this is related to uh, what you were talking about, Steve, is that in that way, yes, we want the flourishing of our children and, and we love them. And so that's why we make the rules. But also, a sin in one of its complexities could be defined as wanting to call the shots on our own terms outside of the one who does know what's best for us, right? I don't let my son run across the road, even though he might think it's fun. It's not because I don't want him to have fun. It's because I know what's best for him. And the disobedience there would be him deciding what is right in his own eyes. And I think that's what we see of the, the first sin of Adam and Eve when they give into the temptation of the serpent. The serpent tempts them by saying that the one fruit God told them not to eat is what would in fact make them like God. And so the fruit is referred to as the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And that word that's know, like to know the knowledge, it means more than kind of an intellectual precognition to know what the difference between right and wrong. I think the word there, which is yada in the Hebrew, represents being able to discern and label what is good and evil by our own standards. So in other words, sin, as God has the infallible knowledge to know what is good and what is good for us and what is not good for us, has designed that rule and God has the type of all-knowing ability to understand that. So when we try to do that in our, on our own terms, we just end up getting things terribly wrong because we don't have that ability. And you see and, that in the book of Judges, especially when mm -hmm. that gets played out over and over again, you see the yeah. phrase and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And yeah, exactly. you see that the times of the judges, 
is not a time of flourishing for these people. It was a dangerous time, so much so that, you know, a foreigner like Ruth, who goes to glean um, grain from these fields, like she was in real danger. And that's why it was so fortunate for her to have arrived at the field owned by somebody righteous like Boaz. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, every man doing what is right in his own eyes calling good and evil as they see fit yeah that's that leads to peril now when you look at that at scene in genesis chapter three with adam and eve one of the things that you see there is being juxtaposed is the question um is god good mm. uh right because ultimately when you look at that dialogue between the serpent and eve the the idea that's being communicated is God's holding out on you, that that you you don't need God to know what the good is, yeah. right? And you can you can figure that out for yourself. And really, what becomes is a type of idolatry, in which you become uh, the judge of of right and wrong. You you become uh, God, and this kind of idolatry is what you see throughout the different aspects uh, of sin. And I, and I want to kind of go back to something you said earlier, uh, Wes, as we're talking about sin, because I want to get into something that's perhaps a little more controversial uh, when we think about sin, because, and this is where I mean when I'm saying that, I, you know, I've, as I've thought more deeply about the nature uh, of sin, and that is... Um, you know, as Christians, we have this understanding of uh, original sin, this idea that that we have inherited a sin nature. One of the ways I like to put it, I think it's maybe helpful, is that we've been born into slavery, uh, slavery to sin. And so, you know, this this has the effect, of course, that children by nature don't need to be taught how to break relationship. They come into the world knowing how to do that. But what they have to be taught is how to mend relationship. What does is, what is right relationship look like? How do we seek out forgiveness and reconciliation? That does not come natural uh, to us. But where, where I want to kind of hone in on is this idea of the image of God, though, and what, what transpires when we, when we sin. Because I think, I think Christians need to think more deeply about, about this. And and here's what I mean. And tell me, tell me, you know, how you guys wrestle with this. But uh, here in Canada, you know, in the United States, we live in uh, a democracy. A democracy is predicated on the idea that when people come into relationship with each other, that their inclination, in fact, is not to murder, steal, rape do all those other sorts of, of sins. If, if that was the case, you couldn't have a democracy. Uh, and society would be crumbling constantly. But in fact, I can go out today and I can go walk, walk the street with pretty good confidence that uh, I'm not going to be, you know, murdered today. Now, of course, it always depends upon where maybe you're going to walk. But by and large, there's very few murders that take place within a given year, considering the population size. And so I think that that's one of those things that, that a lot of Christians, again, they thought you know, deeply about, well, what's the nature of sin then? How does sin actually work? Because when we come into a relationship with each other, we tend not to actually want 
to sin against each other. So what takes place, though, that that changes, that we do lie to each other, we do uh, murder and steal and, and commit adultery and the like. And this is where, you know, Wes, I want to go back again to this idea of the image of God. As image bearers, I would argue that when we see each other correctly, when we see each other's humanity, we encounter the image of God. And when you encounter the image of God in others, you you make declarations like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It says, right, that all humans are created with uh, inherent dignity. That means you were born with value. No one gave it to you, uh, and thus no one can take it away. Uh, equality and inalienable rights, meaning, you know, again, you were born with equality. People are equal, and they have rights that just can't be taken taken from them. Uh, now, I could say more, but I'm going to pause there to because let's wrestle with this a bit because, I, I, again, I find that a lot of Christians aren't sure how to think about this more deeply. Yeah, well, I think those ideas are Christian ideas, right? Like, I don't think you get those from other worldviews. A hundred percent. And in that sense, oh, you talked about like democracy. I think, I think there's something to that. I think it's also a civilization, right? Civilization is predicated on people being civil. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you don't really have civilization. You have chaos and disorder. You have anarchy, <laughs> right. right? And so I think that that I would agree exactly with you. When the image of God, when the Imago Dei is being lived out, and this is why we can look at people who are not Christians and look at the good that they've done, because they're still image bearers. It's not a matter of can non-Christians do good things? Well, they obviously can, but in one sense, they're borrowing social capital from, or theological capital, or um, ethical capital, whatever you want to call it, from the Christian worldview in order to find a grounding in that. And I think where I would go back to is, you know, immediately after the event that I just talked about with Adam and Eve, when you have their offspring, you have Cain and Abel. And that's the first instance where we find the word sin being used in the Bible, Genesis 4-7. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires you. You must subdue it. And Cain is faced with a similar choice to his parents in that he has to make a decision based on deciding what is right because he becomes jealous and angry of his brother because God favored uh, Abel instead of Cain. And so he chooses to give God the second best of what he had, and he ends up killing his brother. And in in that way, sin is depicted almost as like a wild, hungry animal that wants to consume you. And it's like crouching, right? We see this in the New Testament too, this this uh, illusion, this imagery of you know Satan being a lion who's uh, he's he's stalking you. And I think that's related to what you mentioned before, Andy, with the idea of original sin in Romans six six, when we're called slaves to sin, where Paul draws on a similar idea when he describes sin as a power that rules over us. And he you know, goes on in that letter, Romans 7, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. So the word we translate as sin is a robust description of, I think, the human condition, of the failure to truly love God and love others. And it's a condition that since our first parents, Adam and Eve, we've been stuck in. And I think that's what we refer to as 
original sin. We're stuck in this condition because we're constantly repeating the same mistakes that our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. And I guess what where I'm wanting to hone in here on that mistake is that mistake mm. is is a form of idolatry that happens yeah. in various ways. It's to de-deify God or to dehumanize yeah. humans, right? Is to see them, is to see God as something less than God and to see humans as something less than human. And when I do that, when whether I do that to God or I do that to people, I will put myself over God or I will put myself over people. And now I will not treat them with dignity. I won't treat them with equality when we're talking about people here. Uh, um, I will, I will, uh, abuse that relationship in, instead of, so in other words, and I think this is maybe an important concept for us to bring in. In other words, instead of creating good relationship, I will create counterfeit relationship. It is a relationship that leads to brokenness, not a relationship that leads to flourishing. Hmm. Yeah. And in all of this, we're seeing another layer of sin, right? I mean, you brought up the word nature, the sin nature, and that it is not just something that, not just the actions that you do, like murder, theft, rape, but there is something that is driving us from the inside, right? The, that's the sin nature. And so the... Um, illustration that I've heard that I've never forgotten since I first heard it was about this car that's backfiring, right? The backfiring is just the symptom. What's really happening is the engine is off. And in the same way, the reason we do all of these things is because, you know the saying, right? That um, we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. Uh, Because we're sinners in the sense that, yes, we have this... um, nature inside of us that we're enslaved to in, in, a, in like what you were saying Wes it's like there's this I've I've heard it um likened to this kind of genetic disease that gets inherited down the generations and so just as our first parents you know the, the mistake maybe that's too light of a word the the mistake of idolatry Right of setting themselves over God and dehumanizing others, then that gets passed down, and it's so easy for us to do that too. Uh, we're in a sense, well, not just in a sense, we're spiritually predisposed to that sort of thing. There's a a great section in Augustine's book, uh, The Confessions, which is a a fascinating read. In many ways, it's the first kind of testimony. Um, given or or written and and in it he he talks about you know he's listening to this guy sharing his story and it it profoundly moves him and augustine says said as he spoke you O lord turn me back upon myself you took me from behind my own back where i had placed myself because i did not wish to look upon myself you stood me face to face with myself so that I might see how foul I was, how deformed and defiled, how covered with stains and sores. I looked and I was filled with horror, but there was no place for me to flee to 
uh, away from myself. If I tried to turn my gaze from myself, he still went on, this guy with his story that he was telling. And once again, you place me in front of myself and thrust me before my own eyes so that I might find out my iniquity and hate it. I knew what it was, but I pretended not to. I refused to look at it and put it out of my memory. And, and well, it's just such a powerful idea of sin that, you know, where we have this nature that wants to put ourselves over God and put ourselves over people. And the gospel has this way of putting you face to face with yourself so that you see uh, your um, your nature for what it is in light of, of who God is, the the glory and the goodness of God. And it's this in many ways becomes this dethroning of yourself where I'm going to take myself off the judgment seat and I'm going to put God back because I believed in fact that he is good. And this is why I don't think it's just important to talk about sin and to talk about what sin is and how it operates, but it's, it's inherently necessary because the gospel is predicated on the idea that you need a savior. Mm. But we need to understand what we're being saved from. And I, I, this is where I think, especially in our culture today, where we're, we're finding it really hard to figure out whether certain things are sins. We're not, we're not going to be clear on whether a certain lifestyle or a certain habit or a certain uh, predication is sinful or not, or we're going to downplay its sinfulness, or we're going to call other things sinful that maybe aren't sinful. We get into a very dangerous category because the gospel, which means good news, is not good news unless we know what the bad news is. You can't have the good news be applied to your life unless the bad news becomes a reality to it. So Wes, can give give thought to that then. If you're living in a culture that has embraced an extreme individualism as our culture mm-hmm. has, well, you can immediately see the the challenge here, right? Because ultimately, we want to put ourselves as king. We want to become the judge. We want to determine what, you know, what is right and good. Steve introduced me to a cartoon uh, by the naked pastor. And I think we could just take a moment to reflect on that. Just let that sit. Yeah. Just let that. (laughs) Maybe don't think about that. Maybe don't think about that. Uh, My pastor's fully clothed. (laughs) (laughs) So this guy, he's a cartoonist, right? And. he, he depicts things that I would I, I would disagree with, but yet he depicts things that the culture absolutely mm. agrees with. Yeah. And mm. so the, this one cartoon that I sent Andy has uh, Jesus on the one side, and on the other side you see a bunch of people, uh, kind of middle-aged men and women, it, it seems like. They each have a copy of the Bible. And they are all dressed in suit and ties, so you kind of get this idea that these are your typical, really conservative, perhaps evangelical Christians on the one hand, and then here's Jesus with his crown of thorns and, and the and the sash, and so you, you, that's how you identify that this is Jesus. And this uh, speech bubble is tied to Jesus, and Jesus says, it, "It says the difference between me and you is you use Scripture to determine what love means." And I use love to determine what scripture means. And I, I think this is a very accurate portrayal of what's going on in our culture today. Instead of love God, love people, 
our culture has flipped that around and it's love people and then you'll determine how to love God. Yeah, I've actually seen that image. So despite all of my humming and hawing about the naked pastor, I do I do know that <laughs> image because I remember it being passed around and thinking, man, that talk about missing the mark. Like it, and ultimately that that is a depiction of a Jesus created in the image of the cartoonist. It's not an image. It's not the Jesus who in Matthew 22, 31 said, have you not read what God spoke to you when he was being accused and asked a trick question and he holds his audience accountable as if when they're reading the word of God, God is speaking directly to them as if when they're reading Moses, that they're at the base of Mount Sinai, hearing the words of God dictated through Moses. It's just not just not the God of the Bible. And I think one of the things I say in, in a few of my talks is that in one way, no one can break the law of God in the same way that no one can break the law of gravity. So if I wanted to break the law of gravity and I decided I'm going to take my love God, love people hoodie, uh, AC hoodie, I'm going to tie the arms around my neck so that I have a cape. I'm going to get on top of my church building where my office is and I'm going to jump off. I'm not going to break the law of gravity. The law of gravity is going to break me. And in that sense, every time we try to break the law of God, the law of God breaks us. And so when we start to confuse what the gospel is and what it isn't, when we start to, that really is calling the shots on our own terms, right? Literally depicting Jesus in how the culture depicts Jesus. Well, that's, we're in some dangerous territory because the gospel message is, is unconditional in the sense that God loves us and calls us to come as we are in our broken state, but it's not unconditioned because God loves us too much to leave us where we are. So there's some radical change. We need to be born again. That needs to be going on our life in our lives. Now, one thing I think is important for us to appreciate when we're talking about sin is that the Bible is brutally honest about sin. It, it is the most honest book uh, about sin that that's ever been written. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat it at all. And I think it throws a lot of people off guard when they read the Bible because they read it and they're like, oh my goodness, there are a lot of broken, messed up people in this book. And, and that's because there are a lot of broken and messed up people in the world. The Bible's giving it to you straight. Like people are broken and this is what people actually look like. And I would, I would say if I could just poke for a moment at 21st century evangelicalism, we like the hallmark version of the Bible. We we like the hallmark version of Christians, that we really aren't honest with each other about what's going on in here, in the heart, and in the mind. What 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 am I wrestling with? What what are the the sins in my closet? We will put on our Sunday best and we will come and put on a front. We give them the hallmark version, right? But there's a whole there's a lot more going on. And then we're surprised when we find out this or this is, you know, taking place in people's lives. The Bible, though, doesn't do that. It's not sugarcoating anything. It's giving to you honest going. People are messed up and broken. And then Jesus comes on the scene, right, in his sermon. And he's like, you know, some of you are able to present yourself pretty good in front of others, right? You're able to put on the Sunday best, if you will. But Jesus goes, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not making it into heaven. Right. And people are like their minds are blown at this point because they're like, OK, those are the most righteous people we know. They're the ones who lit everything they're doing is for righteousness. Right. They're trying to put on the the hallmark Sunday best all the time. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. When you when you take off 
you know, the appearance and you ask what's going on in the heart, you're seeing something totally different. You're seeing brokenness. And although you may not have acted out murderously, you've got murderous thoughts, Jesus is saying. Can I just say something before we wrap up? I know that um, time is uh, of the essence, but uh, I, I wonder if some of the evangelical platitudes that we develop often obscure what sin really is in the sense that uh, we, we talk about, you know, love, love the sinner, but hate the sin. And, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that I understand where that's coming from, but God actually sends the sinner to hell, not just the sin. And so while there's a kernel of truth in there, we need to be careful that we're not communicating something that's not true or the fact that sometimes we often hear, well, nothing, nothing unrighteous can enter into God's presence. Well, what about Job chapter one, where Satan is literally before the throne of God? Like, I think that these things, these ideas that we talk about when we talk about sin that often sound catchy, they obscure some of the things that we really need to focus on on sin because while there's an aspect of biblical truth to them ultimately they're not coming directly from scripture and they might actually obscure what scripture actually says about the the real gravity of sin so then what do you think is the kernel of truth is in that statement the, in something like uh love the sinner but hate the sin mm-hmm. um i i think the kernel of truth is that uh, you are more than the sum of your actions in that uh, you are more than your sin. And so just because you are a sinner doesn't mean that your entire identity devolves into that sin, that you are not, you are not too far from uh, God saving you, that if you are, say, uh, if you lie, you are a liar, but that is not your identity and your reality as an image bearer of God. And God can do away with that. And so, the kernel of truth is that we do love the sinner and we see beyond their actions. If for no other reason, then I am just, I'm in the same place as everyone else. You know, we boil it all down. I have no, I have no place to judge because I am just as, if not more sinful than anybody I'm going to put in the dock and try to accuse. And so there's truth, but ultimately, like I said before, God's righteousness as the judge that we're going to talk about later is is that he is so serious about sin and so serious about justice that he does send the sinner to hell. Maybe this is a good place for us to kind of wrap up this idea with some some ideas that might might uh, surprise you. This is an important theological point within historic Christianity that has led to things like liberty, that's led to things like democracy, that has led to freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. And, And if you want a great book that really develops this, there's a book called Liberty in the Things of God by Robert Louis Wilkin. In his book, he follows this line of reasoning with the early church fathers from Tertullian onward, a name that I have a very hard time pronouncing, uh, where he looks at this idea that you see all the way back at the beginning in in early church thinking that people have been created uh, with freedom of will, that they have the ability to choose, and that people are responsible for their choices. And this develops a line of thinking that you see 
all the way, again, from those early church fathers, all the way into the Reformation. And something that's a major theme that Christians struggle with, and that is this idea of, okay, how do we hold these things in tension that we need to to get our doctrine of things like sin correctly, but yet at the same time, you know, in our understanding of who God is, but we also need to allow for a differing of opinion that people will disagree on these things and that people are responsible for their actions and that people are responsible for their beliefs. And this creates this freedom of religion, this freedom of conscience, and that you will be held responsible for the choices that you make. And this uh, very much develops this understanding then that sin is, as we've been talking about, this relationship between myself and God and my, my myself and other people, but that ultimately God is the foundation of that that relationship. And when I get relationship wrong, that ultimately I am putting myself in opposition to God. When I choose not to follow what God says is good and right and will lead to my flourishing, I then come into opposition with God. And I think that as we get into this next part, this is something we're going to need to give thought to is Perhaps judgment actually has a lot more to do with my actions than it does God's. Mm -hmm. Well, let's wrap up there. There is obviously a ton more that we can talk about. And one aspect that we didn't really address this week is really sin as this idea of impurity or pollution, right? I mean, we talked about sin as something that happens in in our broken relationship to one another and to God. But there's also this sense of there's this broken relationship that happens between humanity and creation as well. Um, So, and, and how we talk about that will also set up how we see the solution to sin. And we'll, we'll perhaps address that in the next half of this two-parter. For now, though, thank you so much for joining us on this week's edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. Make sure you go on to your favorite podcast streaming platform, like and subscribe. We do appreciate it when you interact with us on social media. On We're pretty active on Instagram and Facebook, so find us there. Uh, and visit our website, ApologeticsCanada.com. Thank you again. We'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, love God, love people. Bye for now. For the love of God, love people.